0: When I was in, I was in a, a seventh grade math class and we had this thing called number sense. So I wasn't on a track team, <laughs> wasn't on the football team, not, wasn't on the basketball team. I was in the number sense club. Nice. Okay. We're talking real <laughs> geeky, nerdy stuff here.
1: Michael Dell founded his company 33 years ago in his freshman dorm room at the University of Texas, Austin. He had $1,000 to buy PC parts and took orders for PCs over the phone. After that, it grew like crazy and made Dell Computer one of the fastest growing companies ever. The stock price went on a dizzying tear throughout the 1990s, roughly doubling most years throughout the decade. It made Michael Dell a multi-billionaire. Since then, the path hasn't been easy. The era of gonzo growth in personal computers and corporate servers, Dell's bread and butter, is over. Now attention has turned to smartphones and cloud computing. Sensing weakness, legendary investor Carl Icahn tried to buy out the company, which probably would have resulted in it breaking into pieces. Michael Dell fought him and won, taking his namesake company private and making it bigger than ever. Welcome to Fort Knox Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I'm John Fort from CNBC. This is a weekly podcast bringing you the highest achievers from business, entertainment, philanthropy, and sport. We're gonna learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or on Google Play or anywhere fine podcasts are distributed. And once you've done that, tell a friend. I went to Round Rock, Texas to talk to Michael Dell just days before his big Dell World Conference in Las Vegas. We talked about the product news for CNBC viewers, but we also talked about his journey for Fort Knox, about almost losing a company he spent nearly two-thirds of his life building, and how he developed the skills he needed to become a legendary founder, CEO, and survivor. We started off talking about the battle four years ago for the future of Dell. Here's Michael Dell. Did you ever think you might lose the company?
0: Yes. Uh, I didn't think it was a high likelihood, but uh, it, the, the, there were definitely some difficult and awkward moments. How did you deal with that possibility? Who did you talk to? Well, I, I spent a lot of time with, with some incredibly skilled lawyers. <laughs> and and uh, you know, they, 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 they were very helpful. Spent a lot of time talking to my wife you know, my, 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 wife has been my, my best friend, my counselor, my partner, you know, uh, for 27 years. And so that, that's, that's been an, a, an important, uh, pillar for me and, in, in getting through challenges like this. Uh, you know, we had a great team and you just kind of power through it one day at a time. And, uh, you know, we, we, we made our way through it but you know if i looked at the the headlines and some of the incendiary things that were said you know d- during that period there was a lot of nonsense out there and you know the 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 i don't think you ever did this john but i think i think there were some media that sort of reverberated on itself and you know there often th- th- is, they, yeah. they were you know they were creating news where there was no news And, you know, that's obviously
1: uh, a a bad thing to be doing. Did you always know what Dell, the company, I mean, it's your name, what it meant to you? Or did the experience of possibly losing it drive that home in a different way? I always
0: knew what it meant to me and, and, you know, was determined to see it through and see it to the success that we had imagined. And it's been all that and, and more.
1: So you were 19, what? Thirty-three, roughly years ago, in your dorm room, freshman in Austin, coming up with Dell, building PCs. What do you think today's Michael Dell, in a dorm room somewhere, is building? It's probably not a PC.
0: <laughs> yeah, but might be a little late for that. But uh, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, I think look, we're we're in an incredibly exciting time in terms of. You know, artificial intelligence, deep learning, machine learning, unsupervised learning, the fifth generation cellular network, the digital transformation, the Internet of Things, all the security challenges. You've got sort of this Cambrian explosion of opportunity that is tremendous. And if you think the last 30 years have been exciting in technology, I think the next 30 years will you know, make it look like child's play. It's- so would you
1: place a bet? Would it be AI? Is that what... The next Michael Dell is is hacking on today. Yeah, you know, I, I think you have to do stuff that you're actually incredibly
0: passionate and excited about, and you know something about, right? Mm. I, I I don't, you know, the the opportunists don't do as well as the entrepreneurs, mm.
1: <laughs> and and so I think I think you have to really believe in what you're doing. So it's less about hey, I think this is going to be hot, so I'm going to go do it, and more about. This is what I'm really passionate about, and I'm just going to push on that and see where it takes me. I I believe
0: it. It excites me. It interests me, and I've got an idea, right?
1: (laughs) So we were just talking about 19-year-old Michael Dell and and imagining what he might be doing today, but actually thinking back, what were some of the mistakes, pitfalls that you made early on where if you had the DeLorean and you were going back and and talking to yourself, (laughs) you'd be like... I mean, it all worked out fine, so I'm sure you don't want to, like, create a wormhole and, and, and change history or anything. But what, what are some of the things that you would say? Hey, watch out for that, or don't, don't care so much about that.
0: Yeah, we, we, made, we made a lot of mistakes, and fortunately, none of them were so big that we couldn't be sitting here today. Right. Uh, you know, we, we, we learned a lot by trial and error. You know, we uh, started a company with $1,000 dollars. Uh, a week before I was taking my final exams as a freshman. Well, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. But you know, when you're when you're 19 years old, you haven't developed all the <laughs> the, the skills you need in terms of judgment and rational thinking. Yeah, you know, we we made mistakes around inventory management and supply demand, and trying to create new generations of products and designing in things and You know, we learned from that the importance of inventory management, and we kind of went from a bad mistake that caused us to stumble to having an extraordinary capability that was a wellspring of growth and success for a long, long time. Hmm. And so, you know, look, I I think- uh, That's
1: that's the growth of just-in-time manufacturing, which was the original Dell Magic, was from screwing up the management of your inventory?
0: That's right. And and you know, when you're when you're doing new things that've never been done before, you kind of have to feel your way through it and 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 make mistakes. And the faster you can make the mistakes and correct not make the same mistake over and over again, well, your learning cycle continuous
1: improvement is only going to be accelerated. Where do you think a kid gets that mindset that allows not failure and depression but failure and learning and moving forward where did you get it
0: you know I I, I probably got some of it from my parents uh, you know they let us experiment and you know take things apart and you know they didn't I, I love to understand you know electronics and I
1: would always take stuff apart you know? I know you said your dad would would bring a calculator home and that was amazing what are the things that you were tinkering with yeah well he you know he had this it's sort of
0: like a pre-calculator, it was like an adding machine, you know, and you punch in the numbers, I'm like a little kid, you know, I'm watching the numbers come out, and I'm like fascinated with this incredible machine, and then you saw the beginnings of the semiconductor revolution, you know, when I was just a couple of years old, right, <laughs> and and uh, you're sort of watching, oh, you can do math problems with these things, and incredibly complicated, you know, that was very exciting, and my my parents, you know, didn't didn't discourage us from from those kinds of things. I think I think, you know, what what I've seen is most people, unfortunately, only access a relatively small portion of what they're capable of hmm. because they're afraid, they don't want to take risks, don't want to make a mistake, and uh, you know, uh, I think. There's too much risk aversion generally, in in uh, in uh, you know people wanting to go and, and do new things. So if if you look at uh, people that, that have have accomplished a lot, I would bet you that they're they're taking uh, more risks and are less afraid of failure than than others. And you know I, I wasn't uh, the smartest kid in my high
1: school. Right, Uh, (laughs) you weren't the dumbest kid in your high school, either. I I did okay. Were you were you involved in a lot of stuff, um, different activities? I I
0: was I, I was interested in computers, and you know, I liked I liked uh, science, and you know, uh, cars, and that kind of stuff. So I was you know, somewhat typical kid. Although computers were, I was sort of at the early. End of that, but every every paper I wrote in high school I wrote on a computer. You know, at that time that was sort of, you know, nobody knew what that was. Sure, the early eighties. I mean, could you even print it out? Yeah, yeah, dot matrix printers. Yeah, we had uh, (laughs) we had uh, dot matrix printers and and daisy wheel printers Uh, if you wanted to make it look like a typewriter. Yeah.
1: Okay. So you were you are tinkering with things. Are you, are you talking more cars here that you were taking apart and putting together? You said you were into that.
0: You know, um, well, I got, I got uh, when I was in, I was in a, a seventh grade math class, and we had this thing called number sense. So I wasn't on a track team, <laughs> wasn't on a football team, not, wasn't on the basketball team. I was in the number sense club. Nice. Okay. We're talking real <laughs> geeky nerdy stuff here. So what we would do is we would we we would calculate things in, in our head, you know, like multiply three numbers by three numbers and you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'd get, you know compete with each other and go to contests and things like that. So this math teacher got a teletype terminal. Okay? So you'd write a program, send it off to the big computer in the sky the answer would come back so I was pretty fascinated by that. this was really before the personal computer showed up yeah and then you started to see the microprocessor based computers and this was all around the time I was in you know junior high school high school and uh, you know uh, I was just fascinated by that stuff so I just threw myself in, in, into that learned everything I could. Uh, you know, bought a personal computer, you know, ultimately tore it apart, you know, figured out how it worked. They were simple back then because you could actually learn how each chip functioned and you could get a book, right? And it would tell you what actually happened inside the circuit, inside each, you know, uh, chip. Mm -hmm. And you could build your own circuits and play around, upgrade them, make them go faster and, you know, I, I was doing all that stuff, and it was enormously fun and interesting.
1: Yeah, and that reminds me a lot of some of the programming capabilities that kids have now. I mean, even if you're looking at virtual reality, most people don't have the whole setup at home, but now, kind of through the Internet, you can uh, you can send code off to places and do... That's interesting. I hadn't seen that parallel before. Where did you learn management? At first, you start the company. It's mostly just you. Eventually, you've got people working for you, and you're young, how do you get up to speed? Have,
0: you know, learn
1: by making mistakes.
0: Uh, I would actually call it leadership. <laughs> uh, so look, I think, I think, uh, you know, a leader is somebody that other people want to follow. And so you have to think about, well, how do you motivate people? And how do you get them excited and engaged? And, you know, I hired some Great people ah, hired some not so great people too, you know. <laughs> but but we asked them to leave, you know, fairly shortly thereafter, and we gradually built, uh, you know, a a uh, great capability to be able to to you know uh, lead the organization forward. I would tell you that our our initial success was uh, more on the strength of the business model that we created, and less because. We, you know, were leadership, you know, gurus or something, right? <laughs> we, we, we were making all kinds of mistakes. But, look, I, I was fortunate enough to hire some really great people, you know, a guy named Lee Walker that helped me very early on, another one named Mort Topfer, another one named Kevin Rollins, you know, all sorts of people at various times uh, of the company. We had a fantastic board of directors, mm-hmm you know, with uh, people helping me. I, you know, went off to various courses to learn, read a bunch of books, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you learn by making mistakes and, uh, you know, not making the same mistake over and over
1: again. <laughs> Are there some books that jump out to you as being particularly influential for you?
0: Oh, you know, uh, uh Ram Charan, you know, wrote a whole series of books. He still continues to write, you know, great, great management books. You know, Larry Bossidy wrote a number of great books about, you know, management and leadership. And so I studied and learned from the masters. And I remember one time I was in, uh, uh, I, I, I t- went to Stanford for a couple of weeks to take a, a course on leadership. Right. And and uh, how old were you at that time? I, I tell you exactly, I was 24 years old. Oh, okay, so this is early okay. on. And uh, you know, the course was in the mornings and the afternoons were sort of for homework and free time. And so I called up a bunch of the CEOs of Silicon Valley companies and said, hey, you know, can I come and see you and i would like to, you know, learn about what you're doing. and I don't know. Most of them said yes. So, so. this is like
1: 1988, right?
0: Who it was are you 1989?
1: calling? 1989.
0: 1989, okay. Yeah. Who uh, are you calling? I, mean, I, I was, was calling Erwin Fetterman yeah. and Jimmy Tribig and Andy Grove and Ken Oshman and a bunch of those guys. And they all said yes.
1: So Andy Grove had you in?
0: Yeah. And so, you know, you go see these guys and, well, you know, how do you manage your a big company? And, and uh, you know, they, 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 they talk to me, right? (laughs) And and so, uh, you know, that was great. And I was doing everything I could to learn and, uh, you know, get help, right? Because, look, our our business in the first eight years grew 80% per year. Mm. And for the six years after that, it grew 60% per year. So if you do the math with all that compounding, that's like, you know, tens of billions of dollars. Sure. And so you know we were quickly learning how to manage a much much larger company, and it, and it changed many many times as it as it went from you know hundred people, a thousand, ten thousand, fifty thousand.
1: <laughs> when Steve Jobs was uh, a younger guy, I don't remember whether it was Dave Packard or Bill Hewlett. He called up because he needed parts. You talk about coming to Silicon Valley to learn at Stanford and calling up CEOs and, and asking to come in and get that one-on-one coaching. Do young people do enough of that making that bold ask cuz to a lot of people that seems crazy. How am I going to call up Michael Dell and ask if I can come in and shadow him? I mean granted you had a company going that had some growth, you had some uh, some cred behind you already, but do people make that ask enough? I certainly get lots of
0: asks, so I'm, I'm not looking for any more, it, it, uh, if, that
1: was, if that was your question. It doesn't have to be you specifically, but I'm sure people have, you know, their local CEO. Uh, do, do young, are young people bold enough?
0: I'll go back to this theme I said earlier, which is I think actually people don't, they're, they're uh, less willing to take
1: risks that they should in order to be successful. My mother told me in high school, "You get fifty percent of what you ask for." At one point, trying to sh- trying to shift my mindset on the number of swings I took, and I still remember that. Yeah, I mean, is is that what you're saying? People need to get up to bat more. I believe so, and and I think I think you know too many people
0: are not accessing anywhere near their potential because
1: they don't want to make a mistake. Huh. How does that factor in to the way you communicate with Dell employees today?
0: Well, we talk about risk in a, in a good way and we talk about experiments and we have business plan competitions and we have new ventures that we start inside the company and we encourage those kinds of things because you know, look, as companies get larger, you know uh, risk can be like a dirty word oh you know, the <laughs> risk committee risk mitigation you know uh, but you know risk and innovation absolutely go together hmm. and you know you're not going to have big
1: innovations if you're not willing to take some risks in the way that you approach your job and what it takes to kind of get your juices flowing creatively are there things completely outside of work, hobbies, things that you do that give you a different perspective?
0: You know, I like to, you know, read a lot. And obviously the internet is amazing in terms of being able to have access to the world's information Mm -hmm. in real time, you know, in enormous quantities. So, you know, I'm naturally pretty curious and love to learn. And so it's sort of a you know, it, it, it never been a better time to be curious because you can you can learn an incredible you know, amount. And and uh, to me, that's that's just endlessly exciting. Uh, it's also important to get enough sleep, too. So so, you know, h- you can you can do too much of that. So, you know, I, I, I work hard to have what I think is a good balance in my life in terms of time with my family. Obviously, love what I do time to. Exercise and and sleep, you know. And if you're going to do something for a long time, you better have a, a
1: you know a a system to do it that is going to last. Right. So, do you unplug, or are you one of those people like me who, even on vacation, you kind of got your phone with you? You're not looking at it all the time, but you want to sort of manage.
0: I have been with separation anxiety, right? And so, so if I if I'm not connected, I just don't feel good, right? <laughs> so, so, I, 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 I like to stay connected. But you know, it's important to relax and and have have uh, time to reflect and, and think for sure.
1: You mentioned Kevin Rollins. There was a time when you handed over the CEO role to him to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Is that something you would do again?
0: Ask me in five or ten years. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But it's not something you'd be <laughs> contemplating today. It sounds like, if don't, you're talking don't about. Don't have any years. plans to do that. No. What did you learn from that experience?
0: Well, you know, uh, it it, uh, it didn't didn't work out as everyone had, had planned, and the board asked me to come back into the CEO role, and so I did. And, and uh, I, I was actively involved in the company dur, dur, during the whole time. So sure, your offices were right it, next to each other. That's right. Anything that happened there that that wasn't you know was was wasn't supposed to happen. You know, I I, ta- I take a b- big portion of the the blame or credit for it. So,
1: so what's the so what's the difference? What's the difference in having the founder CEO? Well, I think founders have a bit of special permission to make changes at,
0: at their companies, and maybe we're a pretty good test case for that because we keep changing things and evolving from from where we started, and. Um, you know, look, I'll, I'll care about this company after I'm dead. So, you know, uh, it, it's just a different perspective in terms of time. And, and uh, uh, you know, I've been, been doing this for 33 years and still pretty young,
1: got a lot of energy and long way to go. That's pretty unique. I don't know how much you think about this, but, you know, Larry Ellison stepped to the executive chairman role from this era of technology that continues to stretch, kind of the the personal computing revolution into web, into mobile, into whatever we're moving into now. There are only so many founder CEOs left. Oh, well, I started when I was twelve. So,
0: so you know, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. 19, but 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 okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, close to Uh, 12. I started messing around with computers when I was 12. Sure. Uh, But look, it's fun, it's interesting.
1: I'd be bored if I wasn't doing this. But what does it mean to you to be still doing it? I mean, you started early. You're still, you know, you're back in the CEO role. The company's got your name on it. I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, Larry's still active at Oracle, um, Bill Gates has taken a step back from Microsoft you talk about uh, Andy Grove you know uh, he passed on and, and many people uh, ha- have things to say about that his incredible legacy what does it mean to you at this point to still be in the game leading this company that you started
0: couldn't imagine it any other way so <laughs> you know uh, you know it, it, it is it is the most interesting and exciting time in our industry. When I step back and think about the explosion in the number of connected devices, the new computer science, uh, you know, the fifth generation cellular network, everything that's going on in 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 in, in our world, you know, this would be like. Re- de- Absolutely, the wrong time to, to not be in the center of things.
1: <laughs> is there one technology or challenge or possibility that you see coming down the pike that you think is being undercovered? People aren't thinking about enough.
0: You know, I think I think uh, uh, it's difficult to answer that question. You know, there the, I would not be surprised if there are. Some very significant breakthroughs in in health, as it relates to genomic data, mm. and you know that's that's incredibly interesting, especially when you think about uh, epigenetic expression and how computational resources can be used to unlock some of the mysteries there. So, you know, in the health area, you know, the the, the intersection between the information sciences and the biosciences—you know—that's a that's a very very interesting area. I think just the sheer amount of data across all industries, uh, th- there there will be big breakthroughs, and usually they're not so much technological as they are business model innovations on top of the the new capabilities that are brought. With all the things that we're talking about, so it's hard to predict the combinatorial inventions that are created in terms of business model, uh, you know, d- downstream. Uh, and you know, we know that they'll be there. We don't know exactly what they will be, and t- to some extent, we don't even care, right? <laughs> it's all good.
1: Um, I want to talk a little bit about. Your philanthropy, you and your wife have a foundation. One of the areas where you focused is on urban youth, uh, an opportunity. Tell me, are there things that you see happening there, uh, areas where people can, can make a difference that have had an impact on you?
0: Yeah, I think there's sort of a, a new model of philanthropy emerging and sort of outgrew uh, from the results orientation and focus on return on investment and outcomes and data and results and success that you know you would find in a company like ours and we've applied that to our philanthropic work and had some pretty remarkable successes in for example education is is one good one so we started working in a number of the schools some of the more troubled schools And we found that they didn't really have any data, right? (laughs) And they they weren't measuring things. And when they started measuring, there was no normative standard across measuring things so that you could actually benchmark them. And so imagine running a massive organization with no data whatsoever. Mm. And so we created something called Edfi. Which is now open source; it's public domain. I think we've got about 35 of the 50 states using it now, and it's a way to measure outcomes and success, you know, at the school level, at the student level, you know, at the teacher level, and and uh, you know uh, that's opened up uh, all sorts of possibilities in terms of how do you actually advance. Uh, outcomes and, and and success inside these some
1: sometimes you know pretty challenged schools. It sounds like you're feeling pretty optimistic uh, about where the company, where the industry is headed. Yes, I am. What gives you that sense? Because uh, I know a number of people in in Silicon Valley yes, the stocks are doing well, um, yes, there are still a lot of big ideas coming out, but it seems like mood-wise people aren't so sure.
0: Well, I'm excited because I see our customers excited <laughs> by what we're doing, and they're responding in, you know, kind of business coming our way. So it, it, it's pretty easy to see that, that uh, you know, the, the things are working from that perspective. But when I step back more broadly and Go and meet with some of these customers. You know, I met with a customer a few weeks ago in in Europe, and they're creating about a billion new IP addresses every year. Mm. Internet of things. It's not a computer company, right? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, right? They're 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 making it's it's the Internet of Things, and they're using Pivotal as the operating system to be able to do that. And that's just one example. You look across all. Uh, you know, uh, of of the various sectors, the cost of making something intelligent is approaching zero dollars, and so the number of intelligent things is just exploding. And so then you layer on top of that this new computer science, and you have sort of this Cambrian explosion of opportunity, the fourth industrial revolution. And America. And, and is, so we're we're we are super excited about that. Is America well positioned? If, if, if in you're that? if you're not excited about that. You're dead or you're asleep. <laughs> is is
1: America well
0: positioned in that writ large? I think it is. I think you know it's a it's a it's a time for software, right? It's a time for networks and you know semiconductors and technology and yeah, software is eating the world. But software doesn't run on software. <laughs> That's right. Right. Software runs on somebody's got to make the somebody's way. got to make all this stuff yeah. that would be us right so we're we're we're, we're providing all the infrastructure for all these things that are that are happening and we're seeing it i mean it, it, you know the internet of things was sort of like an idea a few years ago now it's actually happening and, and you know we we called it embedded intelligence and smart devices and things like that you know earlier on and now we're actually
1: seeing it in scale Well, on that optimistic note, i got to say thanks for sitting down with CNBC with Fort Knox. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Michael Dell. Sure thing. My thanks to Michael Dell. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, and YouTube. I'm taking your comments and questions, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues there with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Next week on the podcast, Carol Tartarinoff is the CEO of Citrix Systems. Born in the communist USSR, his family escaped oppression and then war, as he built the skills he would need to rise through the technology world. Go ahead and subscribe to Fort Knox now on your iPhone's podcast app or on Google Play. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortknox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N O X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.